Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Are you thankful tonight? Amen. This is a fitting time that we should enter into this particular series. It's the month of November, and at least for North America, that means Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is so much more than just turkey and dressing and gathering together, but Thanksgiving is being thankful for what God has done for us and given us. But I submit to you tonight that it's even more important not to just be thankful during a certain season of time, but we should be thankful, especially as apostolic believers, every day. We should wake up with an attitude of thanksgiving. And so tonight we're going to begin our series, The Attitude of Thanksgiving, and we're going to talk about the posture of thanksgiving. It's God's will for us to be thankful. And so for we as a people to fulfill that will, we must take on a posture of thanksgiving. We'll take our text this evening from 2 Samuel 6, and we'll read verses 12 through 15. And you can remain seated, and you can follow along on the screen or if you have your Bibles tonight. 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 15. The Bible says, and it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And so tonight we're just going to spend a few moments and talk about the posture of thanksgiving. Where you're seated, would you just lift your hands right now and let's pray and let's ask the Lord to touch our hearts with his word. Lord, we love you tonight, God, and we thank you. We thank you for the allowance, Lord God, that you've given us to be in this house, to gather together, to warm our hands around your word. We're just asking you now to anoint your already anointed word, anoint my lips to speak, anoint every hearer ear to hear, God, every heart to receive what thus saith the word of the Lord tonight, God, we give you praise and we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. The posture of thanksgiving. What we just read here is a culmination of a certainly very lengthy narrative. It's the story of the Ark of the Covenant during the King David reign. You see, it was once stolen and it was one of the darkest days of the nation of Israel. 
You see, the ark symbolized what was at the very core, the very heart of the Hebrew religion. It was a relatively small chest overladen with gold, two angels on either side facing each other, their wings spread abroad over the mercy seat. But it was more than just a piece of furniture because it was the place that God promised to meet Moses and to speak with him. It contained very important things to the nation of Israel. It contained Aaron's rod that budded. It contained a bowl of manna signifying the miraculous nature of God and the tables of stone wherein the law had been written. It was Israel's most sacred piece of furniture. It signified their covenant with God, and it was their most precious possession. But during the times of the judges, Philistia, one of the most formidable opponents to the nation of Israel, captured the ark and carried it away into their camp. This was such a significant event in Israel's history that Eli, the high priest, when he heard the news, it affected him so greatly and so deeply the Bible says that he fell back from where he was sitting. He broke his neck and he died. His two sons, his very sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the struggle wherein that was stolen. But Eli was more affected by the ark being taken than he was his own two sons. Very, very important. Phinehas' wife she gave birth to a son during all of this, and she named him Ichabod, which in Hebrew means the glory has departed, and so it had. It was certainly very dark days in the nation's history, and the outlook was bleak. However, it wasn't long that the Philistines, when they took their spoil, soon regretted that victory. They took their captor to the house of Dagon, their God, and they kept him there. But they soon realized that God will not stand beside another. God will not compete with any other. He said, I am Alpha and I am Omega. I am the beginning and the end. There is none before me. There is none beside me. And there will be none after me. So Dagon fell twice. The second fall breaking him in pieces, signifying that God would rule and reign wherever he resides. Additionally, men of Ashdod contracted painful tumors, and if you want to know any more information about that, I suggest you listen to a very familiar uh, 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 message by Brother J.H. Osborne. He can, he can put that into great terms for you, and you would understand when I say that they contracted certain diseases, you would understand. The men of Ashdod, they contracted this sickness and this disease, and many died because of the ark. When the Philistines had enough, they sent the ark to Gath, and those men were stricken with disease as well. And so they sent the ark to Ekron, but the Ekronites feared so greatly that they, they just sent the ark back to Israel. And so seven months later, the ark comes to rest in a city called Kerjath-Jerim. It was in Judah, and it would stay there for 20 years. But Israel always maintained a desire to bring the ark back to Jerusalem because without it, they really did lack the anointing 
and they really did lack the, the glory that they so desired. After a, an unfortunate event in attempting to bring the ark back, David finally discovered a way to bring it back properly. And in the scripture that we previously read, the Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all his might, and he, along with the inhabitants of Jerusalem, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. But this was not met with all great fanfare. In fact, David's wife, Michael, herself saw him from a window and attempted to shame him for the actions that he had committed. She attempted to shame him for acting out in such a manner, seemingly implying that it was unbecoming of royalty to act in such a way. But David rightfully dismissed her criticism of his actions. Because of his love for Jehovah and because of his appreciation of Israel's history, he realized the national significance of bringing the ark back. It would be a historical moment, and it would be absolutely monumental in Israel's survival. And David was not going to allow anyone or anything to suppress his joy and to try to quell his gratitude, not even his own wife. And so let me just pause here and say this tonight. We don't need to let anything or anybody or any situation suppress our joy and our worship when it comes to God. It was just a few days ago that we were able to go to prayer conference and Saturday morning we woke up and we went downstairs to eat. This was 8 o'clock in the morning and they had the TV on in the side and, and, and so I just happened to glance over. Anybody ever heard of game day? Happens on Saturdays. Now when I was a kid, that usually started around noon. Well, it starts much earlier now. And so I just glanced over, and this was 8 o'clock in the morning, and there were painted faces, and there were shirtless people, and as the camera just panned down into the crowd, those people were in a frenzy at 8 o'clock in the morning. The sleep was barely out of my eyes. I was happy because we were going to the house of the Lord, but these people were in a frenzy. They were shouting themselves hoarse. And so can I tell you tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of when we get up early in the morning and we lift our hands up to the Lord and we give him praise and we give him glory and we give him honor. We don't have anything to be ashamed of. David would not suppress his joy. It was an outward demonstration and it was matched by what was on the inside. It was a posture of thanksgiving. And so when we think about the posture of thanksgiving, the word posture, we typically think of posture as a physical depiction, such as bowing or kneeling, lying, sitting, and the list could go on and on. However, it isn't relegated to just a physical act because posture always reflects what's on the inside. Our outward posture reflects what's our, on our inward attitude. I, I, I just thought about this on the way here today. I don't know. I didn't ask his permission, but Peyton used to get upset about things, and he would sink his shoulders so far down and bow his back in disgust and, dis, and distaste. You didn't have to wonder what was on the inside. 
it was showing itself on the outside. And he's grown out of that. He doesn't do that anymore, thankfully. And so our posture should reflect what's on the inside. For example, a person kneeling before a dignitary without the attitude of reverence, that act just becomes an empty display. It, it becomes hypocritical. And even in some cultures, that could be an offense worthy of strict punishment if it's done in deception. And so when we worship God, when we worship Him in thanksgiving, we must hold the genuine feeling of thanksgiving in our hearts. Otherwise, it's just an empty act. It isn't really worship. It's fruitless. And so the true value of outward worship is that it is a visible manifestation of what's on the inside. First John 3 and 18, he said, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so we must base our posture of thanksgiving on four acknowledgments. And these four acknowledgments is what we'll base the rest of our discussion around here tonight. First, I must acknowledge that I have nothing of my own. Secondly, I must acknowledge that I deserve nothing from God. Thirdly, I must acknowledge that it is God's sovereign decision to give or to withhold. And fourthly, I must acknowledge that all my blessings come from God. And so very definitive statements I'll make here tonight, they are without repudiation and they are without, they are without argument. Without Jesus... We can do nothing. And secondly, we must completely and solely rely on God for everything in our lives. Jesus records the words, uh, uh, John records the words of Jesus perfectly reiterating what has just been stated. John 15 and 5 through 7, Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, Ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. If you abide in him, and if he abides in you, then ye shall ask what you will. You see, we have to go before the Lord with both thanksgiving and our requests because we have no rights and we have no privileges other than that of the of that has been given to us and entrusted unto us from the Lord. You see, we came into this world with nothing. We came into this world with nothing, and subsequently we will leave this world with nothing. Devastated by loss, Job reiterates this in a very bold proclamation. He said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. 
the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so when we were born, we were born with nothing. We had nothing. We had no possessions. Now, I understand that there's a euphemism there that says born with a silver spoon in your mouth. There's people that say that they have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth. But hear me tonight. The color of the spoon, the make of the spoon, the metal of the spoon does not matter to a baby. The infant does not innately possess anything. The guardians, the, the parents, the benefactors, they may possess houses and lands and silver and gold, but the baby only has what's given to him or her. No matter what side of the tracks you were born on, no matter what socioeconomic background that you may have, we are born with nothing. And so hear me tonight. When we are born again, we're still born with nothing. We have the baptism of the Holy Ghost, but it's because the Lord has given it to us. We have nothing of our own. And no matter where we come from, no matter what we do, we have nothing on our own. What we have has been given to us. Plain and simple. And so we can't come before God and we can't come into the kingdom of God thinking that we ourselves somehow enrich God or add value to him because in the strictest sense of the word, God doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. And so we only have life and we only have breath because of his divine order and his divine call. We are who we are. Because he says we are who we are. We have what we have because he said that we can have it. Revelation 4 and 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. God has given us everything that we have. There is nothing that we have done of our own volition because no person has any gifts, abilities, or talents of his own making outside of God. John 3 and 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. James said in James 1 and 17, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And so if human beings somehow held some sort of ability apart from the gift of God, then that would mean that we would have some sort of leverage over him. And so a view like that would mean that we would somehow be owed some respect or we would have some sense of entitlement to God. But we're not entitled to anything when it comes to the Lord. Scripture makes no qualms about thankfulness being a command, not a suggestion. Hear me, the Old Testament cited thanksgiving as being a fundamental reason for sacrifice in the first place. We learn about that in Leviticus 7 and 12 and then again in 22 and 29. The patriarchs of old made thanksgiving a central theme 
of holy worship unto God. Nehemiah did it. Isaiah reiterated it. And David did it. Psalm 101 through 5. We quote this all the time. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. That's a command. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. That's a command. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Here's another command. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. The Apostle Paul continued this, this this same principle in the New Testament when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4 and verse 6. He said, be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known unto God. Not demands, not entitlements, but requests. Because we have no platform to demand anything from God. We have no platform to be entitled to anything from God because we deserve nothing from God. Hear me tonight. The very essence of grace that God has given is that it has been given. The very essence of grace is his divine favor. But hear me. However, the reality of grace is that it can end with the next breath that we take in our body. You see, we breathe God's air, and we eat from God's supply. We benefit from God's hand of provision, and we enjoy God's blessing, and none of which is earned, none of which is deserved, and none of which are owed to any one of us Me being the chiefest one of all, I don't deserve anything from God. And so that truth in and of itself is what makes pride a chief sin in the eyes of God. He said, fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. And so the truth of the matter is this. I'll leave you out of this. I'll only talk about me. The truth of the matter is this. If I were to receive what I really deserve from the Lord, I would be sorely disappointed with the outcome because what I deserve is swift justice and sure condemnation. But aren't you glad that God doesn't stamp us out at the first moment of our frailty and our failure, but God gives us grace, which is a space to repent. He graciously gives us the space to repent. And so now this is not an occasion to just sin and just go about our lives and live however we want to live with the, with the acknowledgement of the knowledge that God will allow us time to make it right. To that, Paul said, God forbid. But what it should do, what it should create in me is it should make me, it should make us go before the Lord with a thankful heart and with a steadfast determination not to ever disappoint him but to give him everything that we have and give him all of our praise and all of the glory. Because at the end of the day, it is God's sovereign decision to give or to withhold. 
It's his sovereign decision to give or to withhold judgment. And it's his sovereign decision to give or to withhold blessing. And so not only did we enter this world with nothing, but we came into this world flawed and we came into this world sinful. Psalm 51 and 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul wrote also to the frailty of humanity when he wrote to the Romans. In Romans 3 and 23, he said, For all, that's a Greek word. It means all. It means everybody. It means everybody in this building. Nobody is, with the, nobody is withheld back or, or no one is pushed in front of any other. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so on the day of your birth, on the day of my birth, we already came into this world in the red. We weren't in the black. We were in the red. We were already running at a deficit. And so that makes an attitude of entitlement and a logical mindset to approach the throne of grace. An attitude of entitlement simply cannot coexist with a heart of thanksgiving. You cannot serve two masters and you cannot be double-minded. We cannot be both thankful, hear me, we cannot be both thankful for God's provision yet live with a sense of entitlement to His provision. Let me say that again. We can't live in this world and be thankful for God's provision, yet live with a sense of entitlement to his provision. Again, he doesn't owe us anything, and the Lord holds the power to give, and he holds the power to take away. Our provision and everything that we have is simply due to God's unforced generosity. We have no leverage over him. Whatever he provides, whatever he has provided, is only because he wants to provide it. Psalm 65 and 9, the Bible says, Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. And so God only does because he wants to do. God set aside what we deserved, which was justice. And he gave us what he desired, which is mercy and grace. I'll prove it to you. First Peter 2 and 9 through 10. But ye are a chosen generation. Just let that sink in for a moment. We didn't choose him. He chose us. And he made us a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Aren't you thankful for the mercy of the Lord? Won't you lift your hands right now and won't you thank Him for the mercy of God and for the grace of God that's been so graciously bestowed upon us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We know, Lord, that you're not obligated 
to us. He's not obligated. He has no obligation to me. But he alone, thankfully, determines my welfare and my destiny. He called me out of darkness. And he called me into his marvelous light because he wanted to, not because he had to. And he blesses me and he blesses you because he is a merciful God, not because he must fulfill some mandate or obligation to humanity. And make no mistake, all of our blessings come from God. I'm looking at two of them in the congregation right now. It isn't always tangible blessings or commodity type blessings that God gives us. But I'm thankful that the Lord has given me a wife, a loving wife, and a, and a spitfire firecracker for a daughter. He saw that what I needed, and he gave it to me right on time. I'm thankful that he took me out of this world, and he set my feet on a solid rock. I'm thankful that he takes the solitary and places them in a family. I'm thankful for the many blessings that I'm looking at here tonight because you are a blessing to me. I'm thankful for the many men and the many women that came alongside of us and, and took us by the hand and said, let me show you how to live for God. Let me show you what you need to do. I, I, I want to just thank God for all the blessings in my life, for a church family. But for most of all, he gave me the baptism of the Holy Ghost and he gave me a new life and he gave me a future and a destiny. And so every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. And cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This declaration is twofold. First, we must understand that we do not innately possess material or intangible blessings. It doesn't come to us just because we're born. I say this with great deference, but this is not Kuwait. We're not getting some royalty just because we were born in a certain country. And so we don't innately possess material or intangible blessings. And second, we do not have the power to manufacture blessings on our own. I'll say it again. No matter what family you were born into, no matter what side of town you reside, or how much money you have in the bank, we totally lack the ability to live independently from God. All of it comes from Him, and no matter how hard you try, none of it can be repaid. No matter how hard we try to earn God's love and favor, we simply can't do it because no amount of money would ever be enough. Jesus addressed the issue with the alabaster box very, very expertly. After the disgruntled comments of the onlookers, Jesus simply told a story of the creditor who had two debtors. These two men owed more than they could ever repay to the creditor. One owed 500 pence, and one owed 50 pence. But it didn't matter. It could have been 500 million or 50 billion that they could have owed. The Bible said they had nothing to pay. And Jesus said, and when they had nothing to pay, he, the creditor, frankly forgave them both. Can I tell you here tonight that we owe a debt? We owe a debt 
that can never be repaid. Jesus' work on Calvary paid our debts for us. And we no longer have to work to toil to try to make up ground because he's already paid the price and he's already won the battle. And we can do absolutely nothing less than to approach him with a posture of thanksgiving with our hearts and our minds fixed toward him. It ought to make us do that right now when we think about how he hung on a cross and as he took his last breath, he said, it is finished. And that veil was torn in twain and that let us enter in to the Holy of Holies. No more do we have to wait for one man to go in for us to push our sins back for a season. But God has provided a way that we could be cleansed forevermore. Would you clap your hands to the Lord one more time and praise His holy name. I'm coming to a close. I close with this. When Mrs. Klein told her first graders to draw a picture of something they were thankful for, she thought to herself how little these children who lived in a deteriorating neighborhood actually had to be thankful for. She knew that most of the class would draw pictures of turkeys or of bountifully laden Thanksgiving tables. That was, in fact, what they believed was expected of them. But what took Mrs. Klein aback was Douglas's picture. Douglas was so forlorn and likely to be found close to her shadow as they went outside for recess. Douglas's drawing was simply this, a hand. Obviously, but whose hand? The class was captivated by his image. I think it must be the hand of God that brings us food, said one student. A farmer said another, because they grow the turkeys. It looks more like a policeman and they protect us, said another. I think, said Lavinia, who was always so serious, that it's supposed to be all the hands that help us, but Douglas could only draw one of them. Miss Klein had almost forgotten Douglas in her pleasure at finding the class so responsive. When she had the others at work on another project, she bent over his desk and asked whose hand it was. Douglas mumbled, It's yours, teacher. Then Miss Klein recalled that she had taken Douglas by the hand from time to time. She often did that with the children. But she had no idea it had meant so much to him. Perhaps she reflected this was her Thanksgiving and everybody's Thanksgiving. Not the material things given unto us, but the small ways that we give something to others. If you would stand with me here tonight. And so what if tonight we were all asked to do the same? What if we were all asked to draw a picture of what we're thankful for? Would it be a drawing of a house? 
Would it be a car? Perhaps a dollar sign signifying some monetary blessing? Or would it be a hand? The hand of God that so graciously put his hand in your hand and picked you out of the crowd, pulled you out of the darkness that you were in and placed your feet on a firm foundation. And would it be enough as you reflect over that to make you posture yourself in a position of prayer and thanksgiving unto God for the countless unrepayable blessings that he has bestowed upon you. You see, tonight his grace is sufficient. His grace is efficient. His grace is proficient. And he gives it with unmeritorious favor. And so David didn't dance before the ark for show. David didn't dance before the ark so he could show Israel what he could do. He didn't give God praise because of the tangible things that he had or he was able to bestow upon him. David praised the Lord because the presence was returning to Israel. Because David understood one thing. If I can just get in the presence of God, then I'll have everything that I need because he's going to supply it according to his riches and glory. I don't have to fret. I don't have to worry. And I don't have to wonder. But if I can just get in the presence of God and I can posture myself toward him, his presence will supply every joy, every need, everything that I need. And so here tonight, I wonder if for the next few moments you'll posture yourself in a position of praise and thanksgiving unto God for all he has done and for who he is. Would you not worry about who's around you? And would you just for a moment, there's no music playing for a reason. Let's just think about what God has done in our lives and let's give him adequate praise. Let's give him adequate thanksgiving for what he is deserving of. Lord Jesus, we love you tonight, God. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.